Well, now we have um, a good friend of mine, Bob Coy. And we always have so much fun together. But, you know, Bob has just been gifted by the Lord in, in an unusual way, I have to say. God has uh, called him uh, to pioneer a church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He started it 23 years ago, and he claims to have 19,000 members. Now, no, I, you know what? He does. That's how good he is. Wait, I'm not done. You tell them about your books. Yeah, yeah. Your books. Go ahead and tell them okay. about my books, okay. Greg. Yeah. I mentioned, you know, I asked John McCarthy earlier, John, how many books have you written? He said, oh, like four. And he's written probably a hundred. And Bob said, you know, Greg, tell him I actually did write four books. <laughs> and he, he did this, which is the same thing he does when he says, here's why. So, four books. So his books are, what, <laughs> what's the name of your book? Come here, Dreamality, right, Bob? That's, that's one of the books, Greg. Dreamality. Yeah, one of the books is called Dreamality, Greg. Then there's What About Bob? What About Bob's the other book. And also, I'm Bob, but I'm not coy. That's, that, that's, that's new? Yeah. And, uh, his newest... My church is bigger than your church. And uh, right now he's working on humility and how I found it. So, here's a free t-shirt. I asked Bob, I said, Bob, I called him earlier. I said, Bob, do you believe in free speech? He said, yes, I do. Here's why. I said, it's okay. Just do you believe in free speech? He said, yes. And then I said, good, come and give one. So here he is. Bob Coy. Thank you, Pastor Greg. Am, uh, am I on? I, maybe not. Let me check here. Oh, I am. I am on. Okay, good. Uh, if your Bibles are close by, would you open them with me to a couple of places as we prepare to study God's Word? The first place would be 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, that first place is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Once you make your way there, how about Matthew chapter 18? Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to be serious today. I don't know why you're laughing at that. I was talking with John MacArthur about humor in the pulpit. <laughs> I, and I know that my first 14 words are really important. Uh, but I know that I am going to take off and go up really fast, uh, try my best that there's not too many turbulence, and then bring you down very nicely. That's what I'll do, Lord willing. Uh, no, sincerely, I'm really honored to be here, and of course, you know, everybody is. There's a couple of guys that deserve to be here, and uh, the rest of us are still wondering why we're on the list, you know. Um, seriously, the likes of John MacArthur and, and uh, Chuck Swindoll, these are like the, you know, surgical tools that God uses. You feel like you're in this, uh, you know, wow, look at that knife God uses to uh, cut away and, you know, do that wonderful work. Um, I feel a little bit more like a spoon. Um, you ever put the silverware away and you accidentally put one where it doesn't belong and you say, hey, there's a spoon where the knives are at. Um, and I feel like a, a spoon with holes in it. You know, that's that, that weird spoon. You go, where does it even go? Uh, Honey, where does this go? 
well, we haven't found a place for it yet. And that's sometimes how I, I feel here. Uh, still haven't found a place for Bob. You noticed I wasn't a part of that special group. Uh, I was here, and I was in the back. Hi, guys. How's it going, guys? You need me for anything, you know? And there were a lot of things that I heard James McDonald say that I thought, ah. <laughs> uh, probably would have said that a little differently. You know, so. But that's what this chance is all about. Uh, I was asked to speak specifically on evangelism and creativity through preaching. And that's what Greg asked me to do. I thought the subject matter was bizarre and uh, strange for a Preach the Word conference. But then again, all these guys are like my older brothers, you know, so I got to submit. Uh, anyone who's older than you, just go, you don't ask a lot. You go, okay, if that's what you want me to do. Uh, even the, though I think the subject matter is just strange. Uh, bizarre and unusual at a conference like this, I'll do what Greg asked me to do. And he, he said that to me several times, now you do this. And uh, I said, okay. So, uh, let's pray. <laughs> Father, we're so thankful that as a family we can gather together in your presence and by your grace grow. Certainly you know our desire we truly, truly want to make a difference where we live, where we work, and for so many of us, where we preach. So please, God, may your word so penetrate our very heart with these truths that we return to those congregations, to those Bible studies, to those home groups ready and waiting to deliver the goods. Thank you, God, for granting us these goods. Thank you, God, for giving us a place in your family. Thank you, God, for this opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you look at your finger, sincerely, your index finger? Go ahead, look at it. I mean it. Look at it. Okay, here's what I want you to keep on looking. No, you're looking at me. I want you to look at your finger. See that print? That's yours. You say, Bob, of course, it's my print. No, consider that sincerely that the imprint of that finger is exclusively yours. Nobody else has that print. In the same way, if we were to do one of those retinal scans, you know, that biometric identifier, we would discover that your eye and its pattern, well, that is distinctly yours. Nobody else has your eye pattern. No one else has your fingerprint. If we took a DNA test, you know, we discover, we discover truly, 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 there is really only one of you. And just recently, and I couldn't help but note this, report, veins could replace fingerprints as security form of ID. Even the way that your veins course throughout your body, it is unlike anyone else. So, you ever wonder why? I have a suggestion. See, God knows that you can touch somebody like nobody else can touch somebody because that's your touch, reaching out in his name. God knows you'll see something that nobody else will see. You understand? That what you see is not necessarily going to be the same thing that I see. So what you see, what you touch... When it comes to the who that you are, there is something that you can do that, quite honestly, I cannot do it. I was never designed to do what you are called to do. 
and those veins of ours? Well, the blood of Christ runs through those veins. So now, this thing you do when you touch, this thing you experience when you see, this thing that you're doing that is uniquely and distinctively and singularly you, well, now it becomes holy. Now it becomes divine. And now it becomes ordained. Now, please, if in fact it's exclusive and unique and distinct and singular, obviously we are all that different. But the thing that we have in common, and that's what we have been thematically agreeing upon, we have this thing in common. And the thing that we have in common is that we are all fishers of men. We've all been given the same ministry. The same ministry? It's 2 Corinthians, it's chapter, please, 5 and 17. We read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us... The word of reconciliation. The word of reconciliation. You and I have this ministry of reconciliation. We have, another translation reads it, the task of reconciliation. But the task and the ministry, listen, it all focuses on the word. The word, the word, the word. So, with the word? With the word I'm touching. With the word I'm seeing. With the word I'm doing. And all of it, I'm doing in his name. Fishers of men. When's the last time you went fishing? Sincerely, when's the last time you went fishing? If you're the kind of guy, like I'm the kind of guy, who likes to wet a line from time to time, you go out with a specific objective. And you're not going just to fish. You're going, listen, to catch I don't know how many guys go fishing and they never catch. That's not fishing, okay? It's not till you catch, you fish. If you just fish and you don't catch, well, all you're doing is playing. I'm sorry to say, way back when I didn't have this knowledge, too often I would wet a line not to catch, embarrass my entire family. Because we'd spent some money on a boat and... I promised my wife that this boat would pay for itself. (laughs) Because I'd be bringing home the bacon, (laughs) bringing home the fillets. And every time I'd go out and come back empty-handed, it was shameful. The kids would meet me at the door with tears in their eyes. (laughs) Dad. And I'd have to seriously consider selling the boat. But no, 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 no. It's not selling the boat. It's becoming a catcher of men. Catcher of men. Some of you, sincerely, from time to time, you think, let's just sell the church. Why? Because your family, those tears in their eyes. Daddy, did you catch anyone today? No, they all came, but Daddy didn't catch anyone. (laughs) They didn't catch anyone. Now, sincerely... If my subject is creative evangelism through preaching, aren't we all supposed to be catching men? And if, in fact, there is a difference between fishing for men and catching for men, how do we do it? Got an illustration here. This little fly right here in my hand. And this little fly, this is for trout. You want to catch trout, use this little fly. If you want to catch a bass, you use this little worm. But if you want to catch a bass, you'd be better not to use the fly, but instead to use the worm. And if you want to catch a trout, don't use the worm, but use the fly. If you want to catch something bigger, yeah. Now there's the lure, man. Those hooks are just waiting to grab some unsuspecting fish that didn't spend much time in school and grab them just at the right time, man. You say, Bob, we've already learned your illustrations have to say something. What are you saying? Here's what I'm saying. Do you want to catch a skeptic? 
Years ago, I'd pass out Dr. Walter Martin tapes. That's how I do my best to catch a skeptic. Do I want to catch an intellect? Ravi Zacharias, man. You know, he's quite the lure to catch an intellect. Common sinner? Yeah, you could use a Greg Laurie for that. You could. In fact, if you take bread and you make it wet, you create a little dough ball. You could put that on a hook and just drop it in the water and all these fish will come around just to take a taste. <laughs> Not calling Greg a dough ball. Come on, man. Where, how did you go from there to there? I can't believe you did that in your mind. Oh, my goodness. No, Greg's not a dough ball. Please. No. Uh, no. What I'm saying is that each one of us have been created that we might be the best that God created us to be. Authenticity. Do you know that that's what the next generation is looking for? Why play a game trying to be somebody else? Because if tra play the game trying to be somebody else, quite honestly, I, I, I know how easy it is. I know how easy it is. But if in fact I've got this print, if in fact I've got these eyes, if in fact I've got these veins, if in fact I've got that DNA, When's the last time you celebrated the fact that God made you to be you, but there is somebody you're supposed to catch? You were caught. Remember the first time you said to somebody else? It's just something they said, and it caught my attention. And I had to come back, and I had to hear him again. What caught your attention? Something caught your attention, and because something caught your attention, you found your... I was hooked, man. I had to keep on coming back. That church just continued to, man, let me tell you something. What they were throwing out, we were eating. You know what happened? We found ourselves drawn to. This man did the authenticity years ago. Chuck Smith. Greg Laurie. Oh, there's a list of guys that truly did mold and shape my life. That I will be eternally grateful for. But it's been said about my senior pastor, Chuck Smith. I'll say it again about Greg Laurie. Authenticity? Genuine? Chuck is ministering to hippies. Is he not authentic? Being who he is rather than becoming what they are? He never determined to make himself cool or hip or connect or relate. Chuck just was Chuck. And because he was just Chuck, most of us looked on and said, that is so authentic, that is so genuine, I need to pay more attention to that. Oh, I'm so thankful and so grateful he didn't try and be more groovy, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Can you imagine Ravi Zacharias with like a tattoo? The next time he shows up to speak, he's got like his shirt torn off and tattoo or, or a nose ring. John MacArthur with a nose ring. <laughs> The thought of it, I, well, but it wouldn't be authentic. It wouldn't be genuine. You see, I'm at that age and I'm at that stage right now in my life where, yeah, you do look back at the next generation and think, how can I reach them? And there's a tendency for us to start to flex or even begin to compromise and try and be what they want us to be. And I say, be oh so very careful. Because that compromising, when it extends beyond the clothes and affects your content, please, please don't make that mistake. Why? Because what you are and who you are, by virtue of the fact that you're even here, says something already about your integrity and your determination to do this God's way. You want to do this thing God's way. And how else are you to do God's things but God's way? I can't imagine doing God's thing any other way but doing it God's way. That's part of our authenticity, knowing who it is that called us to do the thing we've been called to do. So if in fact we're called to do God's thing God's way, 
Wouldn't it be wise if we took the time to consider how God, how Jesus does and did that made him so incredibly effective, productive? Well, Bob, I don't know that we can use God as an example or Jesus' example. I mean, effective, of course. I mean, we're talking God. Exactly. If, in fact, Jesus employs, if, in fact, God in the Word expresses himself in a unique and powerful way that proved to be very, very, very effective, well, then we have got to look at that as our pattern. Not, not one of these other men. Not, not my ministry or your ministry or that ministry or this ministry. But let's go back to the Word and say, now, what made Jesus, as he preached, so incredibly productive? Again, so wonderfully effective. I've got five somethings that I want you to consider. And if you're a note taker, you might jot down the first in this way. And you could say God or Jesus in that case. But God used visual objects to communicate spiritual truths. I'm going to say that again. God used visual objects to communicate spiritual truth. Now, I know already there might be a few of your little spiritual antennae going up. Did he just suggest I didn't just suggest it. I'm telling you it's so. And the proof of that, my friend, is from Genesis to Revelation, God used PowerPoint? Bob, please. Let me tell you something. In the very first chapter of the book of Genesis, he's flinging planets into place. Is that not a powerful point? Do the scriptures not say that the heavens declare the glory of God? I mean, think it from that standpoint. And as you move a little further in the scripture, what do you find? Well, some of these you can turn to later. Do a little homework. I'll draw your attention to one specifically. But, but just jot down Jeremiah 31 and 1. Most of you, or at least some of you, are familiar with the fact that God calls Jeremiah to go buy a sash, a linen sash. And put it around his waist. Some have suggested that this was the equivalent of a pair of underwear. Now that's not to go across that line. But that is to say, whether it's a pair of underwear or a waist sash, he wears this thing for an extended period of time. And then he's told to not wash it, but instead hide it under a rock. He's to hide it under a rock, and then the Bible says, and then wait many days. I don't know if we know exactly how many days many days are, but he waits so many days that when God calls him to go get that sash, when he pulls it out from underneath the rock, it is now mildewed and ruined. And now God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that pair of old, mildewed, filthy undies, and I want you to stand before Israel and say, guys, this is the illustration. Now, now, even as I get this far, you're thinking, wait a minute. And I'm saying, wait a minute. Jeremiah, didn't God say, go down to the potter's house? I, I want you to see him fashion a pot. And while it's marred in the potter's hand, I'm going to speak a message to you. Doesn't the Bible teach, and now if I can draw your attention to Matthew chapter 18, that there is this conflict going on between the disciples as to who is the greatest? And in Matthew 18 and 1, we read, At that time the disciples came saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called the little child to him, set him in the midst, and said, Surely I say to you, unless you are converted and become as a little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives this little one, this little child, in my name receives me. Now, now, would it have been easier for Jesus just to say, Guys, imagine with me for a minute a little boy. Just imagine. And everybody could even, mm, imagine a little boy. Okay, we see him. Okay, now imagine as you're dialoguing who's the greatest, that this little boy is going to stand in front of me. And then Jesus walks over. Okay, guys, here I am. Hey, boy, stand in front of me, imaginary boy. And now there's nobody there. And Jesus does this study. Do you understand that it has the impact? It has the power. Because as they're dialoguing as to who's the greatest, and they're all thinking positions and titles. They're all thinking who has money, who has authority. Jesus goes, oh, stop, 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 stop. Oh, this is perfect. Get over here. Look, come here. And this little boy walks to a big, big brown eye. 
See this little guy? Guess what? He's greater right now. And everybody, oh, man, this is a powerful thing he just did. You don't think it stuck a lot longer? Because it was not, imagine a little boy, but it was, hey, let's take a look at the little boy. Now, here's what they say, those who study this. They say that your level of comprehension increases with the visual object 400%. 400%. So if it actually increases 400%, and I have been given by God the responsibility to teach something that people remember. I want you to remember it. How can I be more effective on his behalf. Not concerning myself with what you think. Oh, Bob's going to use an illustration. I, I, I just used an illustration. We had the lure. We had the little worm. We had the little fly. Did that bother you? Some of you ready to leave? That's heretical. He used a worm and a fly and a lure and showed it and had a hook. No, I, I, here's, here's what I'm hoping happens. I'm hoping that every time I use an illustration, the next time you see that illustration, your mind's going to be taken right back to the word of God. Why? Because the world is a visual world. And the visual is going to matter more. Now, I would imagine a handful of times, a few of these, I guess, specifically, Hebrew prophets, would that God rather did say, why don't we just imagine this? When Hosea is asked to marry a prostitute, I'm sure he could have said to God, can we just do like a figurative lesson? Instead of having me actually go marry this prostitute, can we just say, Hey, Hosea, why don't you go marry a prostitute, but don't really. <laughs> I would imagine that illustration would go over a whole lot better. Uh, imagine I did, but I didn't. No, what happens is he actually engages in relationship with this woman, and as she leaves, and as he has to go buy her back, everyone sees her. And because they see her, the message to Israel, all the more powerful and profound because I can't believe he has to do this. I can't believe God has to do this. Do you see what's happening in their mind? It would have never made the same message as clear had it just been figurative. Now, please, a little footnote to all this, first point. Be careful when you use illustrations. I think that there's a difference between using an illustration, and here would be the difference, that becomes an advertisement for the illustration, or simply an illustration to illuminate the point. In other words, I want every illustration I ever use that appears to be an object lesson to take everyone back to the Word of God. This is exactly what happened with the little boy. And what happens in the case of this little boy is that after the fact, each time anyone sees a little boy, they go, you know what? Jesus taught us something that was so radical and so absolutely uniquely different. He said that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven was like a little child. What, what did he mean? And that's what they're meditating on. They're not meditating on your illustration. Let me also add to that in this day and age of economic stress. If your illustrations cost something, you're going to lose half your congregation as they just look on and say, who bought that? And who gets to keep it? You know what I'm talking about? I heard of a guy who had a Ferrari on his stage. And I'm thinking, that's an expensive car to rent if you're going to rent it. But if your church is going to buy it, who's going to be driving it next week? And my mind went everywhere other than his illustration. Now, that's probably a, a week comparison, but let me just say, you just show them something. Can, can I give you a few of my last few weeks? My son has a little metal detector. And right now, on Sunday mornings and Wednesdays, we're going through the book of Genesis. And when I talked about Eve seeing this fruit that was good for food, that was pleasant to the eyes, I grabbed this little metal detector and I said, do you know that everybody has a satisfaction seeker? And that everybody's looking for something to satisfy. But do you know that the enemy wants to put fool's gold in the field? And that what will happen is that you're going to be looking for love and you're going to go for lust instead? You're, you're going to be looking for something that has value. You're going to find yourself going for something that doesn't have value. Now, when I do that kind of illustration and everybody looks on and they see, now, again, retention, comprehension, I pray that it increases. But my focus is not whether or not you have a metal detector. Now my focus is this fact, you have a spirit that is seeking, and I don't want you to get easily ripped off. When we did creation, I had a little Ken doll, and I set him on the pulpit, and I 
talked about the term image and likeness. And how in the Hebrew the word image implies one thing, but likeness means another. I said, what's the difference between image and likeness? I said, well, what is the what? The other is the... You know, it's very interesting to me that what is God clothing himself in human flesh. Think of all of what he could have come to earth in form of. He chose to come to earth in the form of a human being, and not only a human being, but a little baby human being. But when it comes to not just the what, but the way that he came, you see, as a man, he has feelings like you and I have feelings. He has the capacity to love and the capacity to hate. But now watch this. Let's say for a moment, I want to have relationship with this being and I want him to worship me. And I lifted Ken's arms up and I had him sitting there and I feigned for a moment pulling a string and him saying how much he loved me. And everybody's looking on thinking... That would be very robotic, that relationship, if you forced him to do what you want him to do. I said, here's what happened. God created us in likeness and image, but then he gave us a free will. And suddenly you see these lights going on in people's minds. They're understanding that they have the freedom to go for the fool's gold. But how important it is they find the real deal. Now, this is how I do it. And again, Greg asked me to do this. I don't think I would have shared that had Greg not asked me to. But my point is this. No, I'm kidding. Um, think through your Bible studies. And when you're thinking through those Bible studies, you come to your place, you go, you know what? I think that this might really help. My people know this truth. As you get a little bit more creative, you come back. What happens is that the word comes alive to you. You see, I didn't have the privilege or the opportunity to get a formal education. My understanding of God's word, in most cases, uh, came to me as a Sunday school teacher. I got saved. I went to Calvary Chapel, Las Vegas. I wanted to get involved doing things. And, you know, next thing you know, uh, somebody says, well, there's Sunday school teacher opportunities available. I, I love to teach Sunday school, but I never knew my Bible. I never read the Bible. But now I'm a Sunday school teacher. And let me tell you something. I got some David C. Cook curriculum, and I remember reading some of these stories for the very first time at the age of 25. And I'll never forget Joseph in his coat of many colors the first time. It, and I read through this book, and then I see his brother throw him in the pit. This is an incredible story. And the next week, there I am in front of all the kids. Guys, do you, have you ever seen, and all the kids are like, yeah, Joseph in the coat of many No, no, this is an incredible story. Man, you know, he gets sentenced, and then there's Potiphar's wife, and, the, and I'm so excited about the Word of God. This is an incredible book. But how do I communicate that? As a young communicator of God's truth, do I, do I grab a little coat and throw it on a little kid? And then do all the other kids have the chance to be jealous? And then do we take that kid and on Sunday morning throw him into a pit? Don't tell us. That. No, 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 no. We, we, we didn't do that. Let's come back to our second point. But the thought is this. So many of the kids love Sunday school lessons because the teacher's got this little object thing, makes them all think like that. Then we get to be adults. Do you actually think that the living, walking word of God, Jesus Christ, he traverses the planet with a big scroll in his hand, and anytime anyone asks him a question about his father, he opens the scroll and gives him a reference. Did, did you think that's how he did it? No, the, the world was his canvas. And every time he had the opportunity to, oh, 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 hey, hey, you see the temple here? Can I tell you something about this temple? Let me tell you about this temple. Oh, let me tell you about the vineyard, okay? You know, we are the vine, you're the, and I can see him interacting with his creation. And with that, these images are branded on someone's brain and they're left there for a long time. Please, don't let your illustration be your content. But if your content needs a little added visual, it, it, I think we've understood at this point, it, that's, that's okay to do that. It's okay to do that. Number two, if you'll go with me this time to Luke chapter 13. I happen to believe that Jesus Christ, and this is the second point, made the Bible current. What do I mean by make the Bible current? Well, of course, there were teachers of his day. He oftentimes referred to those teachers of his day. You've heard it said. You've heard it said. You've heard it said. And what he would do is take what was said by the letter of the law and give to everyone who is willing to understand the spirit of that truth. As he's doing this, of course, and, and teaching them, 
uh, course in time, now specifically Luke chapter 13, we read there's a bit of a conversation that comes up. And the conversation that comes up has to do with Luke chapter 13 and 3. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelled in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, the context of what's happening here, and I probably should have started the first verse, I apologize, uh, let's do that. There were present at that season, some who were told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, and Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered such things? And then he continues, come on back up. There's these Galilean insurgents. They're resisting and rebelling. Rome crushes a heavy foot. And now people who are observing the life of Christ and how uniquely different he is, they approach, hey, we have a question to ask you about these, uh, these guys who Pilate uh, evidently, you know, crushed underfoot and, and mingled their blood with sacrifice. What do you think about that? Now, I know what they're expecting Jesus to say. You know what? There's a price and a penalty for rebellion. That's, I think, what they're expecting to say. He doesn't say that. Now, what he determines to say instead is he goes right out into the real world. He is very aware that through tragic circumstances, this tower fell and 18 people were crushed. He knows that these people weren't responsible for, of course, these towers coming down. And because they weren't responsible, he now turns the question back to them and says, Guys, let me ask you this question. Do you think that only sinners pay penalty? Can I tell you that everybody's a sinner? And unless everybody repents, we're all guilty and we'll all die? Now, what is he doing? He's using current events. Jesus is using current events to make the word of God current. And can I tell you that one of the things that turned me on to Jesus Christ was the way that my senior pastor, Chuck Smith, used current events to make the Bible current. That while I'm living in Las Vegas and I'm running this girl review at a casino, I get invited by a 21 dealer to this Christian's house to watch a Chuck Smith documentary on Israel and the return of Jesus Christ. And I find that this girl's attractive enough to follow just about anywhere. And I think, all right, I'll watch this documentary. I'll have an opinion. And with that opinion, I can gracefully exit and continue on in my pursuit of her for other reasons than getting to know her God. But, but here's what happened. I walk into this guy's house. He's a fellow 21 dealer. And he smiles at me and I'll never forget his words. He said, so you're Bob Coy and you came to Las Vegas to get saved. And he smiled at me, right? And I go, I came to Vegas to get saved. Oh, oh boy. And I walked in. That's not what's going to happen. Dude, you are so out there. And they made us a beautiful breakfast, flipped on this documentary. And while Chuck Smith in Israel is talking about the Bible and current events and all the things that are happening in the Middle East, I'm just looking and going, oh, wow. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. He starts talking about the rapture of the church. He starts talking about it could happen at any time. Let me tell you something, sincerely. That left such an impression upon me that I had the equivalent of a nightmare just a few days later where I actually... There was an automobile accident near the house. And I woke up in the middle of the night and the flashing red lights and the sound of people saying, Wow! Whoa! Wow! The place I was living in was two-story. It had a patio window overlooking the street. And some folks from the house, it was kind of a communal thing, they left their rooms and they walked over to the window to look at the accident below. I sit up in my bed and I see these silhouettes, these white robes, and I see this flashing red light and they're saying, wow, it's happening, 
What? Something to that effect. I, I explained, what? What's happening? Is it now? Is it going to happen now? What's happening? And I'm convinced that the rapture has happened. I'm left behind. Some people are in the transitional form. And, and as they're on their way up, it's a true story. I said, and, and one of the girls said, no, there's an accident out in front of the house. We're just watching. <sighs> oh. Oh. Okay, so I'm here. That hasn't happened yet. Okay, I didn't believe it anyway. I didn't believe that Chuck Smith guy anyway. I knew it was all phony stuff. I knew it was phony stuff. If somebody comes to your church and they hear you preach, is there going to be a connection with what's happening in the real world, with what's happening in the Word of God? Is it going to appear to be this antiquated, outdated book that you've got to blow the dust off every time you read? Or will they read this book and understand they're reading tomorrow's headline? They're reading tomorrow's headline. It was the Orange County Register on Monday, this Monday here in Southern California, and it had this picture of a charred community, and the title on the newspaper said, Armageddon. And I thought, if that wouldn't preach. Wow, well, that's an incredible current event to draw right to the Word of God and then say to your congregation, guys, this didn't happen, not the real one. But let me tell you something. The reason that the governor used that term is that that is what someday will happen, according to this word. And everybody goes, oh, okay, all right, all right, maybe. And then maybe the next time there's a forest fire that crests somebody's home or gets near someone's community, there's people making their way to church thinking, you know what? This, this thing's getting real to me. This thing's getting real. This, I'm starting to feel the heat here a little bit. Why? Because you brought the Bible into their world. And because their world is something that's dealing now with the economy and the government, all these things are happening. I, I'm hoping that you're preaching to the sufferer in your church because then you'll always have an audience. It's somebody suffering right now in your church. And if you approach the text and you're working your way through and you don't connect it to real life, then they don't think it has any meaning to real life. So there has to be that connection. Jesus is using a current event. Goes, Guys, let me just remind you, that tower that fell down killed 18 people. Nobody's right. If you don't repent, you'll pay the price. And I just want to use that illustration and this illustration to remind you, everybody, everybody has to repent. Everybody has to repent. Can I make sure that everybody has to repent? And make sure everybody knows that. Number three, if you'd make your way with me this time, Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And in Matthew chapter 12, Take a look with me. Verse 24. The Bible says, Now when the Pharisees heard that said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And here's what I want you to underline. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then is his kingdom stand? Now, now, please note what is happening in the text. There are people who are criticizing Christ, criticizing the content of his message. And here's what I note. Jesus, and here's your third point, Jesus answers and asks questions that were never spoken. That's a very effective way to communicate truth when you ask questions and then answer them because you know they're in the heart of man. Man is, is filled with skepticism about this thing called the church. And what we try and do on a regular basis is take away that concern or that curiosity by simply being so upfront and telling them, this is what we're about, this is what we do, and this is how we do it. And we know you're thinking this. How do I know they're thinking this? Because I think I tend to think a lot like the common man. Current event, what they're thinking, and now answering a question? Well, sometimes they'd ask it, sometimes they'd stay silent. You want another reference point for that same experience? It's Luke chapter 6 and 6. And if you have time to turn there, you could. Luke chapter 6 and 6. Look at the way that it reads this time.
Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught. There was a man there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely where they would heal on the Sabbath that they might find accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Arise and stand there. He stood and arose. And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or destroy it? Do you, do you see what's happening again? He feels the suspicion in the crowd. He knows they're in error. And because they're suspicious error, he decides that even before they have an opportunity to take their criticism to a convincing opinion, he says, I'll stop it right here. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask this guy to stretch out his hand, to stretch out his hand. I'll prove you can do good on the Sabbath. I'm going to take away the objection. Now... Obviously, because of the condition of their heart, he wasn't as successful taking away their opinion because their opinion would stand in the face of his miracle. But he still knew what they were thinking. You've had this experience if you're a pastor, and I love when it happens. You've got your notes. I have notes. You've seen them. But there's a point in your study where you seem to just kind of go off, and it's like, wow, well, where am I? And in the back of your mind, you're going, where am I going? I don't really know. And it might be a turbulent. It might be. It might be where you're going to go on shaky ground here, and everybody's going to go, where did he go? I don't even know where he went. But there are other times where it's so spot on. And you say something with the authority of the Spirit that certainly has a foundation from the Word, but as you stretch out, your own faith. Just like the man stretches out his hand. Hey, stretch out your withered hand. Hey, you know what? I'm going to stretch out here now. I'm going to try something. You try something. What happens? Well, it's that very thing that you say. You come back to your notes. It's after the church service. You're walking through. Somebody walks over. You go, Pastor, did my wife call you? <laughs> what do you mean? That thing you said. Just tell me. Did she call you? No, she didn't call me. I said, but that thing you said... Uh, I'm not really too sure what I said, believe it or not. <laughs> Some guys a little less sure what they said than other guys, but what, what, what are you referring to? And here's what they do. They come right back to where you thought you were chasing a rabbit. You thought it was chasing a rabbit. No, for them it was a divine appointment, the divine God that put in your mouth at just the right time, the right thing. It was the answer to the question that they were asking. They say, man, I heard the voice of the Lord. Just like the woman. You, you, you know the gal, she, she, she encounters Christ and when she heads back home, she says to the townspeople, come, come meet, I, I think I found the Christ, come meet him. He told me everything in my life I ever did. I, I, I'd never read that. I thought they had a dialogue about how many men she'd been with and whether or not she was with the right... I, I didn't know he told her everything that she ever did. But she saw it as, ah, oh, something happened here. Um, I had some question as to whether or not I could, I could ever have hope, ever go back, ever have relationship with God. And you totally answered my question. And how did he answer that question? And the amazing thing about how he answered the question, he, he actually answered that question... By revealing her lack. By revealing her lack, he answered her question. Her lack was one of relationship. He answered her question by saying to her, Hey, um, why don't you go grab your husband? I, I don't, I, I, well, I, I've got a few of them. And, uh, got, well, I'm, well, I perceive you're a prophet. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Have something to say about my immorality, do you? Yeah, 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 yeah. When Jesus said, who do men say that I am? I read this liberal scholar. He submitted that Jesus was actually asking to find out. You know, it's like. <laughs> who do you guys say that I am anyway? Uh, some say you're John. No, I'm not John. I, uh, anybody else have any idea who I am? That's, 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 that's borderline blasphemy. Now, Jesus is saying, hey, who do you guys say that I am? Now, why is he asking them a question that he knows the answer to? Because he wants to hear them. He wants to hear them. 
How, how many times did James go from this side to this side? Say, all right, all right, all right. He's getting us engaged. James McDonald turned to you and go, say this to your neighbor. Say, I love you. Ricky, say, I love you to your neighbor. Yeah, say it to everybody, okay? Say, say I, right now, please, for my for sake of, I, I don't do this as well. Yeah, say, I love you. Say, I love you to everybody, okay? Now, come on back. That, I, I don't do that as effectively as he does. I, I don't. I, I haven't mastered that one. But, but here's what he did. He engaged us. He engaged us in an experience that didn't make it just, Hi, I'm up here and I'm behind a pulpit. I'm just going to read words. And I hope at some point we feel like we've enjoyed a relationship and communication that would cause you a desire to come back and hear me stand behind this box and talk some more. No. She says, hey, who do men say that I am? And, and you know, it's really interesting. When he says, hey, who do men say that I am? Caesarea Philippi, he's got this big, huge visual right behind him. He's got, a, he's got another PowerPoint right there behind him. And he's asking the question. He's having dialogue with his congregation. And they're going to go ahead and have an answer. And with the answer, he's going to have a chance to say, Hey, Simon Peter, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood is not revealed there. But guess what? You, you got it right. You're the one who got it right. I, wow, amazing thing. You ever, you ever give a chance through rhetorical conversation for your chance to amen, a chance for your church to amen the things that you know are true so we can just all agree together, amen? You see what happened? I did it. <laughs> and when I was talking with Greg about this subject, I said, well, Greg, what were you really thinking that I do? He goes, well, sometimes, Bob, you know, you explain to them, you, you don't really do a monologue, you do a dialogue. I said, how's that? He said, well, you're, you're always asking questions of yourself and you answer them from the pulpit. And I said, I do? And he said, you do. You think I do? Yeah, of course I do. Here's why. There is a reason why, because I know that you're thinking about... Uh, when we first started our church, our church started in a funeral home of all places. Fairchild, I needed a place to have church and there was no, we didn't have any money. So I started knocking on mortuary doors going, hey, can we, you know, use your building for church service on Sunday? And this one guy said, yeah, sure, you would. Yeah, really, cool. That's great. Uh, so we're having church service at the mortuary and there is this... Uh, There's a curtain that leads outside to where the hearse can come and move people, you know. And I'm standing in front of that curtain every week. And I'm seeing everybody every week and they keep on looking at me and they keep on kind of looking at the curtain. And I could feel that. I go, you know what, guys? Here's the deal. I'll show you what's behind the curtain. I grab the curtain. I go, just pull it back. Just a couple of the doors. I said, every week I watch you do this. You're wondering that. And everybody, and everybody looks at me with a smile and goes, <laughs> like, we were. You know that. That's what we were all wanting. You could feel it in the room like, oh, we never knew it was behind there. And then, listen, I launched right into it. And you know what? Someday, you might be going through those double doors. <laughs> Illustration, right back to the word, man. Bring it back. Ask a question. Do you know what's behind these double doors? No, I don't know what the... Hey, Carol Merrill, show them what's behind the double doors. Yeah, let's take them right to the double doors. Don't be afraid of asking questions that you know people are asking, then answer it so you know what they're supposed to know and find out when they... I wasn't asking that. I never thought that. Well, you should have been thinking that, and that's why I asked it. <laughs> Fourth, go with me this time, John chapter 7. And you know, you know this one, and we're going to pick up the pace here. I'm almost out of time. But John chapter 7, in verse 37, and it links... Perfectly, I think, because it's my study, uh, to, to what I just said. Um, Jesus made people aware of their need. Here, here's John 7 and, and 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast, he stood up and he cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Anyone thirsty? 
Is anyone, is, is, is anyone in darkness? Is anyone looking for an escape? Is anybody hungry? The I am's of Jesus Christ are perfectly matched to every need I have. So he makes me aware of my need by declaring the I am of who he is. So when he says, if anyone's thirsty, now it's the last day of the feast. I think they had anything to drink for the last few days. I think a lot of people have had a lot of things to drink, but in their religious experience, with as much as they've had physically to drink, they still knew that there was a need. And because there's still a need, hey, if anybody's thirsty, thirsty? Oh, we've been busy feasting for the last half a dozen days. Why would we be thirsty? Here, here's what I'm, I'm talking about a completely different thing. I know that you're dry inside. And if I make you aware of your lack, it was, James has said, it's not a matter of felt needs, it's a matter of spiritual needs. It, it, these are all spiritual needs. But how do you make someone aware of their spiritual need? Well, you have to illuminate their understanding so that they get the difference between dark and light, so that they want to come to the light. The law of God is still a very powerful tool to remind people how serious a sinner they are. And you'd be very wise as a pastor to, on occasion, just reference Exodus chapter 20 and say, Guys, can we make sure we get this right? There are ten commandments. It's not now seven because God was thinking, you know, i got to be a little more understanding. You know, we're now living in a different age. And I'm going to pull a few of these away and make it a little easier for you to get into the kingdom. No, he's got ten commandments. He'll always have ten commandments. When you take your church right into those ten commandments, what happens? Everybody goes, wow. I don't do that, I don't do that, I don't do that. I've thought of that. I've thought of that a lot. <laughs> thought of that, I almost did that. Wow, I am a sinner. And when you reveal their sinfulness, what happens? Well, then they, they know they are. I, 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 last time I got a traffic ticket, long time ago, long years ago. Um, but I'll tell you, I pulled on the airport property to drop off my wife just a few weeks ago. And one of Broward County's finest, you know, pulls right up alongside. Now, my wife's only had one ticket in her whole life, and it was at the airport. Because it drops down to 15 miles an hour, and no one's ever gone 15 in their life. So it drops down to 15. She's going a little too fast. She gets a ticket. So as I'm turning the corner, she goes, better slow down here. Remember, this is the one place I got my ticket. And I go, ah, yeah, yeah. Keep on going. This car, he like, he's got this hemi ram, ram charge thing. He, it's like he stepped on the gas and his car spun around. My window's down, his window's down. He goes, hey, you want a $324 ticket? No, sir, I don't, sir. No, sir, I don't want a ticket, sir. <laughs> you just broke a law. That is how much it costs. Do you want that ticket? No, sir, I don't. Okay, watch your finger. Okay. What happened? Law, truth, power, conviction. It all happened at the same time. I, I, I pulled away my hands at the 10 and 2 position. Checking my rear view mirror, my side mirror every three seconds. Thank you for the warning, officer. When, when's the last time you asked the church, do you want to go to hell? What, 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 ha what happened to that place? Sir, do you know the good news is good news because the bad news is bad. The bad news is really, really, really bad. That's why the good news is really, really, really good because the bad news is really, really bad. So you make someone aware of their lack Suddenly they go, I have something that's missing. I'm really dry, and he's got water. I'm really hungry, he's got bread. I really have darkness, he's got light. I want an exit, he's got a door. And, and, and when you do that, making them aware, they now have a destination. They know that where you are preaching, they can find what they're looking for. Because if, if you don't, they don't, they don't even get why we're, why we're doing what we're doing. What we are. This is a, a, a recent Christian periodical that I don't know if you're allowed to read or not, but uh, they do this little poll thing. What is an evangelical Christian? Listen to this. 36% say, I have no idea what an evangelical Christian is. 9% uh, say it's a type of Christian. 4% say it's a closed-minded person. 9% say it's a zealous or a devotee. 
5% say we're just fanatics. 3% say we're the ones who impose our beliefs on others. 8% say we're the ones who rely upon the Bible. And when it comes to those who think evangelicals are the ones that follow Christ, a whopping 1% said that an evangelical is somebody who follows Christ. Why? Maybe we weren't transparent enough to say what we were lacking and how we found it. And now they just think we go to church to hear messages. And the substance or the content of those messages have left people wondering, why did they come? Why would I do that? Fifth and finally, you can turn there if you want. This is so obvious. But John chapter 1, verse 19 John chapter 1 and verse 19. Now, I want to say it this way. And when he says it, you can't say this. But Jesus was always clear and certain in his convictions. John 14 and 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can get to the Father but through me. Now, you can't say that. You understand that part. In other words, you ever, if you ever say to somebody, yeah, I'm going to preach just like Jesus. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the... You're not. He is. But the point I want to make is that he was so certain and so convinced that he was the way, that he told everybody he was the way. There's no ambiguity there. There's no vague uncertainty there. Jesus is so convinced he's the way to God, he tells everybody he's the way to God. But the way this is meted out in the life of a, of a normal, hey, I'm an evangelist, I'm a preacher, it's John chapter 1. Look with me at verse 19. It says, now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he convinced and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm not. Are you a prophet? He says, no. And then they said, well, who are you? We might give an answer to those who sent us. And what do you say about yourself? Watch what he said. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah has said. Now look what his definition is linked to his doctrine. I know what Isaiah said, so I know who I am. And let me tell you who I am. I am one voice crying. That's what I am. I'm one voice crying. That's what I am. I'm one voice crying. That's what you are. One voice crying. I'm not the voice. I know who the voice is. I've heard that voice. But I am a voice crying in the wilderness. And here's what my message is. Get it straight. Get it straight. Be straight. Live that life. It's a straight and narrow path. And that's the one we're all called to take. You get that straight, you're going the right way. Now, the temptation, my friend, is to be somebody apart from your authenticity, that wants to be somebody you're not, but you're not. How tempting do you think it was for John when they say, hey, are you the Christ? For him to say, well, if you think I am, let me, you're not the Messiah, don't do that. Are you Elijah? Well, we've got some similarities. Yeah. <laughs> is, that, is that what you think I am, Elijah? Like a miracle worker guy? Is that what you think? Well, kind of. He says, no, no, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not. Oh, here's what I am. I'm a voice crying. And I know that I'm a voice crying. And my message is specific, clear, concise. I'm telling you, it's time to be straight. It's time to get straight. I, uh, I want you to be that clear. I had the honor and privilege just two weeks ago to be at Billy Graham's house. I was teaching at the Cove and my, uh, my fly partner was his grandson, one of our associate pastors, and I had done a devotional at the, at, at the headquarters and then I went over to the Cove to do uh, my, the, the regular Bible studies and it was Saturday and Pastor Stefan, who's Billy's uh, grandson, said, hey, Grandpa's in the mood for company. You want to go to the house? I said, do I want to go to the house? Is he really Graham? Yeah, yeah, I do. So we, we drove up to the mountain house and kind of got in the back uh, family room and there's Billy at 90 years old as of last week. And we begin this conversation. And although his body is very frail. His mind is very alert. And as we start talking about the election, he, you know, defaults to Wilkie and Roosevelt, you know, and, and that heated, uh, you know, election. Wilkie was evidently a very gifted communicator, and Wilkie, I'd never heard of Wilkie, I think, 
It's like he saw human history from here to there, and he remembers all these different elections. He knows all these presidents, you know. And then in the family room, there's these two porcelain, um, you know, kind of dolls. And, and I said, now, who is that? And he said, uh, Moody and Sankey. Moody and Sankey. Porcelain, I mean, blue and white porcelain figurines of Deal Moody and Sankey. And, I, I, and I, I got home and I look up Sankey because I didn't know who Sankey was. I, oh, Sankey, that's like the song guy. That's the, that then equivalent of Billy and George or Cliff Barrows. You get that? Wow. That's pretty powerful. Which made me think, I, I wonder if someday there'll be like a, a Hans and a Greg porcelain doll. You know, but it's a different thought, and I'm back to Bible study. But here, here's, here's what I really thought. We're, we're coming down the mountain, and, and what immediately comes to my mind is, is Paul writing to Timothy in 4 and 6 of the second letter. He says, I, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, and now there's a crown waiting for me. But then I triggered over to the first letter, fight the good fight. And I said to Stefan in the most sincere way, your grandfather's done fighting. He's fought the fight. He's finished his... He's done now. He's done. I'm still fighting. I'm still fighting. You're still fighting. And there's a battle out there. there. There's something we have. If I could live even a part of my life with the whole surrender that Billy Graham lived, I see him spending his life with one goal and one objective in mind. And now he's done. He's done. He's waiting to go home and get his crown. And because we had the chance to go through the library just outside the headquarters, the Friday before the conference, I get to the end of the library, and the guy who's doing the tour for us says, since June, 815,000 people have come through the Billy Graham Library, and listen to this, over 800 decisions for Christ. Wait, wait, that 800 decisions for, for, for Christ, walking through the life of the man who lived the life. Do you understand? His, his message was so singular and his life was so devoted that he's got this afterglow that's still winning people to Christ while he's sitting in his family room waiting to get his crown. That's huge. That's incredible. So my charge, preach the word. And may it never be boring from your pulpit. May it stimulate your listeners and may it captivate your congregation. And each time you preach, may they, may they leave that building and say, I, I heard God speak to me. And I don't think I'll ever be the same. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you so much for an opportunity to draw close to you through your word. And Lord, we would go back to our opportunities to teach it. With a spirit and a sense of creativity, Lord, we would never want to compromise. We would never want to be called into question concerning our substance or our spirit. Please, Lord, help us to stay holy. But with that same spirit, Lord, may we do our very, very best to leave that impact, make that impression. Lord, please. May those who listen to us teach the word of God enjoy the illumination of your heart for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks, guys.